The following podcast contains explicit language. Moments ago, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer acknowledged that the president believes three to five million votes were illegally cast in November. You won the election. What are you complaining about? There is no widespread evidence of massive voter fraud. And there is a reason they are providing no evidence. There is no evidence. It is not true. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So the idea that the Trump administration is routinely in violation of political norms has become an article of faith among observers of Trump and company. You might even call it the norm to report how abnormal all this is. But to stress that something's abnormal, you have to first know what normal should be, which brings us to one of the gifts of the Trump era, the late-life civics lesson that many of us are getting in what actually are the norms of the American government? What counts as a conflict of interest? What's nepotism? What's due process? It's like we're all learning this at once. So remember when Trump suddenly fired all those U.S. attorneys? It looked like yet another effort to capsize the ship of state. But it turns out it's kind of normal for a new president to clean house in this way. But remember when Trump said Obama had wiretapped him? Well, that wasn't so normal. So today, I want to look beyond the twin spectacles of the confirmation and Russia hearings and ask what's normal for the State Department, for diplomacy. Steve Call is a staff writer for The New Yorker and the dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia. He's written a column this week for The New Yorker called Rex Tillerson is Still Acting Like a CEO. Call published a book in 2012 about ExxonMobil, which Rex Tillerson used to run, and he argues in the column that Tillerson is still acting like a media-averse, secretive company leader instead of like a diplomat. What he says about Tillerson's behavior since his confirmation has ominous implications for the State Department and even for foreign policy. My guest today is Steve Call. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker and the dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University. He typically reports on issues of intelligence and national security, and he's the author of Private Empire, ExxonMobil, and American Power. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Virginia. Good to be here. Um, So we are such in the business now of spotting violations of norms on the part of this administration. And I want to very systematically describe the challenge to norms, the breach of norms happening in the State Department right now. First, I want you to tell us how Rex Tillerson works. What do you do as chairman and CEO of Exxon? I mean, Exxon is about as opaque to me as um, as the current State Department. I mean, you say he he as CEO and president and sorry, chairman worked in an office, a suite called the God Pod. This is not a very transparent office. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, no, they're, they're a very closed company. Um, their headquarters is in Irving, Texas, in between Dallas and Fort Worth in a very bland-looking kind of office park setting, small granite and glass building. And the chairman and CEO works upstairs and flies around the world a lot trying to put deals together. So that's the commonality, I suppose, with one part of the Secretary of State's function. So I was working on this book uh, that became Private Empire, came out in 2012. And so I basically was an outside-in kind of journalism project. I knew I wasn't going to get a lot of access. I did get a few background interviews, was able to visit the headquarters one couple of times. But mostly I had to do it on my own. And 
he refused um, interview requests. So I did the kind of Johnny reporter thing, which was I would try to find where he was speaking in public and go and get in the audience and stick my hand up and ask a question. So I saw him, you know, three, four times at, in the kinds of controlled environments where he would speak. Typically, he would go to a think tank or an economic club. He would read out a very prepared scripted speech that said, the same thing he had said two months before and the same thing every other ex Exxon executive was saying. And then he might take a few questions at the end, three or four questions, maybe five, but usually not from reporters, from the people in the audience at the economic club and that sort of thing. And, you know, he's he was comfortable in those settings. He answered the questions intelligently. He in his Senate confirmation hearing, I I didn't think he did great, but he he talked without notes and he was able to handle most of the questions that came his way. So he's not the worst uh, public speaker or answerer of questions in the world, but he just has never dealt with constant interactions with a free press. And that clearly, he's uncomfortable with that idea. He doesn't quite understand how it works. He doesn't have any experience with it. In this uh, one interview he gave to the single journalist who he allowed to accompany him to Asia last week, it was quite revealing uh, when she pressed him about his attitude toward the press he said, well, I'm, I'm not really a press availability guy, something along those lines. And then he said, I don't need it, as if the whole purpose of press attention was the way Donald Trump uses it, which is ego gratification, megalomania, et cetera. So anyway, that's, uh, that's his experience. I really was found very compelling this point that you made about other companies like Starbucks um, and Apple having a certain requirement to stay accessible to the press because they have accountability to consumers and they're constantly, you know, know that their relationship with consumers is the thing that supports their brand. Where Exxon, with a commodity that we're all, uh, you know, desperately dependent on, oil, doesn't have to make nice with consumers at all. So, so Tillerson didn't care to cultivate those relationships, either with the media or with well, I was going to say consumers or as they might be now called in his current office, the quote, American people. He doesn't care about that. But why should he care about that in the State Department? I mean, isn't a lot of diplomacy accomplished behind closed doors by masters of the universe the same way oil deals are? Some, but not a lot. And I think the answer is uh, that the Secretary of State is the most important voice for America's foreign policy, for its values, for its place in the world after the president of the United States by Certainly by practice in the post-war period, that's the role the Secretary of State has played. I mean, think of the last ones before him. John Kerry, Hillary Clinton, Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, Madeleine Albright. I mean, five of the most formidable public figures in two parties, you know, across a long period of time. Every one of them, a very strong voice in the world in one way or another and within the State Department and within the administration. So the first thing is just... It has been the practice of secretaries of state to represent the United States continuously um, before international media, at conferences, at press conferences, on the mm. plane with American reporters, and so on. Second thing is, yeah. within, the, within the way the modern presidency works in foreign policy, there are two poles of foreign policy making, um, if you don't count the Pentagon, which unfortunately in our militarized foreign policy also is a poll, but the, traditionally it's the White House and the State Department. And there's always tension between the State Department and the White House over who's really writing the script here. And State Department um, 
secretaries, the secretary of state, usually has to exert influence by using the bully pulpit of being the nation's spokesperson abroad in order to just shape what U.S. priorities are, to just talk about them all the time. And it's not unusual to have a secretary of state who's not intimate with the president, not intimate with the White House aides mm. who went through the campaign, but who gains influence just by being out there all the time talking. Think of Hillary Clinton. I mean, she was famous team of rivals after that bitter campaign with Obama. Mm -hmm. She came into office with without any connections to the White House, in fact, with a great deal of mutual suspicion in between her circle and their and the president's circle. But she made herself effective by using the office of Secretary of State to, to speak and speak and speak and just shape America's voice in the world. She was, you know, one of the great kind of foreign town hall holders uh, in the history of the State Department. And gradually, through the effectiveness that she brought to that public role, she gained influence in the White House. And so here you have uh, Tillerson, who has no friends in the White House. And I don't know how he's ever going to gain influence since he doesn't really want to do anything other than be a kind of special envoy um, for missions not entirely clear at this point. And so that's another consequence of his silence, I think, is a loss of influence. You know, to, it surprises me, frankly, to hear that the breakthrough, diplomatic breakthroughs like Nixon and China or Obama and Cuba are not normative for statecraft. That, in fact, more routinely, as you say in this piece, success in diplomacy requires these tools of, I guess, consensus building or at least um, optics that include interviews, press conferences, even speeches, social media. You know, can you give me an example of how what you say is more more routine diplomacy using these tools I just mentioned worked, say, for Hillary Clinton or for past secretaries of state? Okay, so an area that I know pretty well is the Afghan war that she inherited along with Obama in 2008. And the biggest problem there was working with Pakistan as a supposed ally who were also helping the Taliban. And one of the reasons why that relationship was so difficult was that Pakistani public opinion was turning against the United States because of our drone strikes, because of a lot of reasons, and the Iraq war. And uh, Hillary Clinton was amazingly effective at going over to Pakistan and meeting with women, going to college campuses, holding open town halls, calling out Pakistan's own army. You know, people would say, ask her really hard questions. She'd say, yeah, well, where's bin Laden? And people would laugh. I mean, just kind of bringing the American sort of openness and voicing and willingness to take questions, willingness to speak freely. I mean, the power of that as a counter narrative to conspiracy theories about American intentions, uh, whether they're real or not, is is just essential in this world. And then the other point is... Who are we with in this world? Never mind who are we. We're an open society. We're supposed to be a democracy. Our officials are supposed to be transparent to the public that pays their salaries and puts them in office. But all of our friends in the world are also open societies. And so, hmm. you know, foreign mm -hmm. policy arises from the politics of open democracies. And that politics shapes how much maneuvering room Angela Merkel has or how much why Theresa May can say something about this, but not something about that. Everybody is shaped by their own democratic politics. And that involves public opinion, it involves opinions in parliament, it involves the attitudes of opposition parties. And so if you want to influence 
the alliance of democracies, you have to speak beyond leaders to publics, to parliaments, and you have to be accountable to their media too, at least to some extent, at least open to them. And I just think that that seems so fundamental to the information age, the kind of social uh, media world we're in, that to just opt out of it, because you don't have a Twitter account, because you don't like the press on your plane. I mean, it just, it's self-defeating, is my, is my, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you saw Julia Yaffe's piece in The Atlantic earlier this month, or at the start of the month, saying that the, the State Department is like a ghost town now. Um, you know, Bannon, Stephen Bannon's proposed deconstruction of the administrative state is very much an evidence there. Tillerson, has he been marginalized? And, and um, you know, some in the State Department were saying they were taking marching orders or they thought they would be taking marching orders from Jared Kushner. They barely seem to have an idea of where Tillerson was ideologically or of any kind of articulation of of what they were supposed to be doing coming from the top. He does appear to have been marginalized so far as I can see. For the best evidence is that he has been unable to arrange for the nomination of a deputy secretary of state, which hmm. is a critically important position. He apparently, and it's been widely reported that he suggested the nomination of Elliot Abrams, um, a well-known figure from the Bush administration who had been in the State Department, would have been the right kind of compliment to him, somebody who knows the system, someone who everyone in the building knows. And and then he was overruled by the Trump White House because they believed that Elliot Abrams had been too critical of Trump during the campaign, so he was on the enemies list. Well, since then, that was in February. Hmm. Um, a month has passed. No additional name has come forward. Below that, there are seven, eight, nine critical positions to the State Department's leadership that are empty or being or they're being held by acting diplomats, but they don't have any, those acting officials don't have any connection to the agenda of the Trump administration. They're just placeholders. And there was a chart I saw the other day that compared where the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, and the Obama administration were at this point in time with these seven, eight, nine, 10, 12 next most important appointments at the State Department. And they were all, the, the worst performer, I think, had eight or nine of them. Hmm. And, uh, and Tillerson's State Department has zero. So in a way, it's not as though we're looking to Tillerson and his opaque way of leadership that he, that you, you know, you saw a bit at, at Exxon and, and now seems to be in evidence at least on this Asia trip, in his current role, we're not just thinking that this is evidence that there's some some dark kind of secret backroom deals that are go that are going to be dangerous to national interests, but rather that he's not going to be able to conduct any diplomacy at all. You know, maybe that he is putting him in this position as he's just a placeholder at, for the dismantling of the State Department. Is that does that sound like an exaggeration? Well, it might be, but it's uh, it's a reasonable question given the evidence. I mean, what is he going to do with these opaque missions? He went to Asia for relatively transparent purposes to consult with allies about the emerging problem of North Korea's missile program looking closer and closer to being a nuclear threat to the continental United States and to prepare for the visit of the president of China to the United States next month. So those are traditional reasons to go out there. But he said very little about 
what he's working on. He kind of hinted that he has some projects involving building coalitions around North Korea. He certainly signaled that he expected the Trump administration to take a harder, more confrontational line with North Korea. And yet, if you're going to pull off something like that, you better be speaking continuously to the legislatures and the publics of all of the countries in Asia that would be affected by a military confrontation with North Korea. Friends, you know, the Japanese, uh, the South Koreans, the Australians. There are relatively few cases where secret negotiations are at the heart of American diplomacy. It's not just like seven guys in a room. That's not the way we're organized. So if you're not going to say anything, you're going to leave all those allies and those legislatures and parliaments and publics behind. I guess what just holds me, continues to hold me up is the State Department has been in the sights of of certain conservatives, of proto-Trumpites for um, maybe decades. And even the procedures you just described as being used by Hillary Clinton and possibly even before that, you know, in Condoleezza Rice and other Republican, other uh, secretaries of state, have been part of the sort of that that liberal spirit of we have to give microloans to women and and making jokes with other you know heads of state even though we have conflicts with them and and that was the kind of thing the a cartoon of the kind of thing that Trump campaigned against you know he made it sound like this is a man to man thing and I'm not going to do this kind of kabuki, it just like get me and Putin in a room or get me and, you know, you name it in a room. And I think he suggested that Tillerson was going to do that too, that he was just going to, as you say, it was going to be seven guys in a room and they were going to get this stuff done. I don't know what exactly that was supposed to look like, but I think the optics of putting Tillerson in this role was partly a tough guy who's done really hard deals for Exxon. And if you can imagine he can manage those huge projects, then of course he can bring North Korea to heel. Yeah, I think that's I think that's correct. I think that's the way he signaled the appointment and the way he in, he signaled his own intentions as president. And he is a you know an unabashed America first president and he does want to return to hard power and he doesn't seem to be concerned about the values led human rights emphasizing, public health emphasizing inheritance of the State Department, USAID, and really Congress, which has across Republican and Democratic administrations insisted that American foreign policy include advocacy for press freedom, for human rights, for the health and welfare of the bottom billion and the delivery of public health services. And, you know, you go out in the world and there's lots of troubled countries and lots of hard dictators. And in those places in Africa or in Asia or in Central America, if you're a small human rights activist or a researcher who gets crosswise with your own government, you know, the U.S. Embassy is meant to be a sanctuary for your credibility, for your visibility in the world. And that whole ethos is what brings people to work at the State Department every day. That's why people join the Foreign mm. Service. That's what they do out there in the world. And to have a secretary who's not talking about that or encouraging that or promoting that mission inside the building, inside this vast network of embassies and consulates, it's gonna be, it has to be enormously demoralizing, never mind the 30% budget cut. Yeah. But um, 
you know, to come back to the kind of hard power thing, let's just take that at face value. Okay, what are we going to do? We're going to do a deal with Russia about what? I mean, I'm not quite sure. That's always been the mystery of Trump's agenda in Russia. Mm. Um, but in any event, suppose there was an answer to that question that made some sense. What's at risk in doing a deal with Russia? European security. Russian designs on European open elections, their intention to try to disrupt European democracies, their in intention to regain influence in, in Europe, the promotion of authoritarian figures in countries like Hungary. And so what's the role of the United States? Are we, do we really want to allow that to happen? Of course not. We're committed to NATO. We're committed to the European Union. Its survival is in our interest. And look at that meeting that Angela Merkel had with Trump. I mean, Angela Merkel's the most important leader in Europe. Germany is the engine. What chance we have to preserve the European Union's vision of free borders and open democracies and political integration in Europe, at least some form of political integration, rests with her. And she comes to the White House and he treats her the way you'd treat an enemy. And it's madness. Yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is not... It is not smart. It is not some kind of cool, hard power alternative to the American foreign policy uh, inheritance. It's just not. Right. Yeah. It's just uh, just chaos without an end in mind. Um, I want to ask you then one last question because, you know, you, you studied Exxon so closely. And I think that from what I get of your attention to Exxon and Tillerson, there may be some predictive power here. So is the thing we have to fear that a hard power, as you say, approach by Tillerson, a kind of indelicate, hawkish non-diplomacy where he blunders into situations to make, quote, deals, you know, a language from the world of CEOs and not a word like treaties, the language from diplomacy. Um, is that the worst fear or is the other fear that he's just a lame duck who's just been installed while um, Bannon and other foes of the State Department dismantle it, destroy it? Yeah, I'm not worried about the first one. I am worried about the second one. Mm. I think his outlook on the world is, you know, a realist um, who would prefer stability, who thinks in long cycles, doesn't want war, more likely to be an ally of someone like Mattis, trying to just, you know, try to stabilize um, these conflict regions. And there are some unstable problems like North Korea that require care and thought. I don't think that Tillerson is dangerous when when he's at the table talking about those things. But I do think his failure as Secretary of State, the isolation that he's in, the lack of understanding about his job that he still is trying to overcome, the the absence of support, the absence of deputies, the absence of a connection to the core missions of the embassies and consulates around the world every day, and his willingness to accept the evisceration of the department's budget, I think the result of all of that could be a very diminished and demoralized department, and um, and I'm afraid not a very good uh, footnote in history for for Tillerson. Well, another uh, upbeat note for the end of Trumpcast. Um, <laughs> thank you very much, Steve, for being here. I hope I'll talk to you again. My pleasure. Good luck. Thanks. So that's it for today's show. At Trumpcast, we are a circumspect lot, and we rarely talk to the press. Jason DeLeon is the producer of Trumpcast. He's not taking questions at this time. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer for Slate Podcasts. He wants to refer you to Tommy Laren for questions, comments, and concerns. 
Andy Bowers is our chief content officer at Panoply. He's traveling. He's back in late July, and you can try him at that time, or maybe just reach out on LinkedIn. I'm Virginia Heffernan, and I'm all too available on Pinterest, Snapchat, and wherever social media is found. Thank you very much for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.